0: Elf Sisters podcast. I'm Mary and I'm here with my sister Christina. Hello. Hello, Christina. Yeah, we're just back
1: from a bit of walking on the southwest coast path. Just recovered from that.
0: And Mary's about to introduce the book. Okay, so this, this month's book is The Supreme Lie by Geraldine McColchran, and it's a book. Sort of rated for 12 plus, and it's been read by our group of mainly adults and a few younger people. The setting of this book is an environmental crisis in a fictional place. It starts in the main city called Presto, where the president, a madam suprema, is told by her weatherman that the rain that's been raining continuously for several days is actually not going to stop any signs soon and she might need to worry about certain things around the area. She decides that actually she's going to be blamed for all this and she's not going to be popular anymore so she does a little runner and her poor husband and maid are left really to pick up the pieces. The main narrative is told by Gloria the Maid, but also by two different dogs in the story, Daisy and Hines. It's set in two places, the main city, Presto, but also upstream in the countryside, and another city called Rose City is also involved. The narrative of the destruction and the chaos upstream is described in the main by the dogs. Although it's a de hoc subject... The story is quite humorous and actually very bizarre in places and it makes it very readable and a different sort of piece. A bit unusual. There's lots to enjoy about it. I loved it. I think Chris really enjoyed it as well. Um, For the most part, the bad guys get their comeuppance and the good survive, but with some exceptions. It's also arranged in chapters, but with some newspaper articles interspersed, which sort of describes some of the chaos and headlines, some of the disaster, and it sort of adds a little bit to the story as well.
1: Right, yeah, I I would agree with Mary that it's a really enjoyable book to read. Um, I loved it. I'm surprised I've never heard of uh, Geraldine McCorkren, especially if she seems to have written lots and lots of books. I might say a little bit more about things I really like, but I was going to just mention that um, when you get to the end of a book, it says it's based on an actual flood in America. uh, She says in 1928, but I think she probably means the great Mississippi flood of 1927, which I Googled, um, because that's one of the biggest floods in American history. And a thing that echoes the story is a group of bankers in New Orleans blow up one of the levees to divert the water away from um, their own city to a community in the Mississippi Delta. The other thing that's interesting is that um, she doesn't actually choose to write The Great Flood of America. or She chooses to set it in an invented country called Aphelia. Uh, Mary very kindly posted a review of a book for our book club And Nicholas Tucker, who wrote the review, says that one of the things he said about Geraldine, he says some really interesting things, telling us a bit about her background, but one thing he says was he didn't find her fantasy setting as powerful as her real world locations in books that, to be fair, I haven't read. So there's one in Australia called The Middle of Nowhere, he mentioned, and one called Stop the Train in the American West, which he also mentions. But not having read those, but I have read one, which I think Mary's read as well, Where the World Ends, which is it's historical, 18th century a story about the what happens when all the people on St Kilda get smallpox, was it? And the children that are off on a rock trying to gather some supplies for their survival just end up stranded there. I know it's a little bit of a detour, but I will come back to the Mangle book in a second. I really did enjoy that book, but I found it quite um, harder to get into than this book with the invented country of a failure. Geraldine says, uh, she says in the article, I've never invented a country before. I can thoroughly recommend the fun of it. I think that, for me, is the key. There was more fun in this book than there was in the St Kilda book. Um, She wasn't so bogged down in maybe in facts and and um, trying to tell a specific story but felt that she had the um, possibility of doing lots of fun things with it so Mary already mentions that there's kind of newspaper anagrams there's a extremely weird situation which is a 15 year old girl pretending to be um, the ruler of the country there's all the narratives by dogs um, there's even that somewhat ridiculous idea that the main country city presto city is basically a city based on making cutlery which um i know this happened in the past but it does make it quite amusing so you've got factory number one that create makes spoons and factory number five and makes forks and so forth so she's obviously really enjoying herself with doing this uh, particular world building I mean also it's clearly she's kind of got the best of both worlds because although she can invent things for her story she is also she makes it clear it's the same world as ours I mean there's quite a lot of historical background like Latin and classical civilization and I guess deliberately mentions rather older authors like Aristotle and Pliny and Cicero and Socrates so she references back to the classical past but doesn't um, as far as I remember interject anything more recent so it's clearly the same world as ours it's not doing fantasy unless you count maybe the facts that the the dogs are um, they're not really anthropomorphized they're not like uh, the rabbits in warship down or anything like that but they are they very much experience things in a dog kind of way but maybe Hines at least The main dog narrator is maybe a bit more intelligent than most dogs, and he also seems to have a relationship with a hound, with hound death, and with something called the dog master. (laughs) So it's definitely something extra coming on, but not something that feels out of a way of how a dog might perceive this world. So yeah, I really liked all of that. So maybe if I've read read all her other books, I'd come up with. A sense of loss for her real world locations but I just thought what she did here really worked very well so I don't know about you Mary.
0: Oh I loved it I mean I again like you I've only actually also read Where the World Ends which I did really enjoy at the time of reading but I read (laughs) that a couple of years ago now and, and I think I enjoyed this book more and it was definitely the sense of sort of fun in it which sounds a bit bizarre with it being quite such a dark some quite dark issues in it Mm -hmm. um i think the dog's narrating the part of the disaster worked really well yeah um in describing things that were probably quite horrific but because they're told from a dog point of view it sort of softened it a little bit it sort of Mm -hmm. made it as an observation rather than as a graphic thing that was was happening it was also, there was quite a bit about the dog looking for his owner. Mm-hmm. And that was a very, you you can imagine that, that dogs would be seeking out to find their actual owner, what's happened to them. And and yes, again, with the, the hound of death, which I feel was really his inner sort of voice, almost talking mm-hmm. about the destruction and everything, rather than an actual hound of death. I didn't think, I didn't picture another hound running around at that point
1: it may be meant to be well dogs perhaps uh, have a different sense of death and dying and this is how in a dog's head this would appear as a, as another a big deathly hound the other thing i thought the dogs did quite well was that they sort of were a counterpoint to the corruption of the city and the um the way the the humans in Presto City, the main city, were all out for themselves. And then you have dogs that are not so much out for themselves. Also, the thing you have with a dog is there is a sort of episode where the main dog uh, joins a dog pack. You have the way dogs survive. So you have um, uh, this whole thing about having to have a top dog and you have this little dog that um, is described as being too small to have any kind of brain who basically just um, uh, wants to hold on to the things it knows. So it's holding on to its car saying, my car, my car. And then eventually when... uh, Heinz, the dog, becomes the one that's uh, kind of keeping the dogs in order. He goes, my dog. (laughs) So it's. I feel there's. she's probably doing a little bit of an allegory of how people react to these circumstances, but yet keeping it totally believable
0: within the dog world. She also made a real contrast with how people in the city behaved compared to people in the countryside, which is quite interesting. I don't know that it would be quite as black and white as that because a lot of the people in the city were much more out for themselves than the people in the countryside. They seemed to be more willing to perhaps compromise or share things or, you know, do some joint action that would help, whereas the people in the city were, were very much... Maybe they just felt powerless, I think, because they didn't have that sort of... They'd been, they were trapped in there and there wasn't much they could do.
1: I think they were being manipulated. So I'm not sure she was doing a country versus city thing, but she was... So- certainly doing a contrast between a very industrialized mechanized city whereas Rose City and all the refugees that end up there they seem to maybe live on a bit more of a human scale and they actually want to help and they want to help you know provide aid to the other city but maybe also that's something to do with when you're directly threatened so perhaps because the uh, Uh, Presto City was more directly threatened in the other location they were helped they'd already have floods and were helping each other so maybe it's something around how human nature rallies when you have a a disaster but uh, but it goes in the opposite direction when you fear a disaster so you could say it's a bit like well we want to get all our COVID vaccines before we help anyone else it's that kind of thing that uh, when you're under pressure, you start thinking... So they all start thinking about their families and their children and what they can do to to preserve their life rather than how they can help other people. And one thing I really liked about... Well, one thing I started thinking about when I was uh, looking it over was... um, as we said they, they have these newspaper articles and then the newspaper article starts running lies and they're all fairly obvious lies so they say there's rabid dogs on the streets and to try and keep people yeah they're manipulative lies to keep people inside and then they start saying there's, the zoo animals are out there will eat them and but then they start putting in all these stories about the people in Rose City and how they're full of immigrants and barbarians and people that don't behave in the civilised way of their city. So they start um, putting a lot of propaganda against the people of Rose City because they want to blow up the dam there. And I don't know if that's what happened in New Orleans. I think in America they just thought, oh, there aren't many people there, so it won't matter. And in a sense, that's what they're trying to sell to the people. One, there's no one there, it won't matter. Two, the people who there are... Oh not your kind of people they're not people that you need to worry about and then the thing that I hadn't thought about when I first read the book but is fairly obvious is that they while they're doing this propaganda they decide to do a referendum on whether or not they should bomb this the dam or not and so I was thinking actually they're just doing a lot of the moves that happened in, in the UK Brexit vote and so to me this is this whole theme of the story is less about environmental disaster and more about political corruption and the kind of lies that uh, people will tell to manipulate populations. I think there was some reflection of that in our book group, wasn't there, Mary?
0: We certainly got on to talking about that we shouldn't just believe what is written in the paper and it is, you know, you should question things and think for yourself a bit, but it's difficult to know where to go because people have been questioning whether they should be vaccinated or not and yet there's lots of people who think well we need to be vaccinated because otherwise this covid um is just going to carry on forever and ever and the anti-vax sort of lobby get quite a a big say as well so you know what what do you believe really what do you believe how can you always find the truth when the girl starts acting as madame suprema
1: she just thinks it's a question of saying do this do that and then it will all be sorted out and that you can do a lot of things with common sense but um at the end of the day it's always more complicated so there is a part of the book where timor um who's by this stage has proved himself as being a good guy is wanting um gloria to lie because they don't want to cause a political uh, rebellion, a revolution. And so they're trying to keep quiet certain information. And so it really does bring up the question about lying, whether it's, whether um, a necessary lie is a good thing. So in fact, uh, when Gloria is lying about children, she calls it a necessary lie, a kind lie, a lie she likes so much more than the truth, that she kept right on believing it. So it's kind of what she wants to believe. I think the author is looking at, there are times when people do need to lie. Mate, there's a point when Timor is lying to Gloria about what he thinks will happen because he doesn't want her to be upset about things. But I think it, at the end, it comes down to saying, well, well, no, this isn't, you know, lying, even for supposedly good purpose. is not really the right thing to do. So I think there's a difference between that and say, yes, you've got... Uh, people who think everyone should be vaccinated and you have the anti-vax, but that's not really around lies. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, there's, it's a really, really good book, actually. And it's, it's not as heavy, perhaps, as it we make it sound from the discussion. We really just... You can really just enjoy it as a story and, the, and just take what you want from it. And I think that the different people in the book group took different things from it. Mm-hmm. Um, the adults generally really enjoyed it. The two younger children, the twelve year olds really enjoyed it, although neither of them had quite finished it, but the older teenager who's eighteen, didn't really enjoy it, and we're not actually quite sure why, but she actually thought it was more of a children's book, which I think everybody else in the group disagreed with or didn't see it as that you know as a younger children's book I think. I think people, I think younger children could enjoy it on a slightly different level and older children could enjoy it on a different level as well. And and adults, you know, it's great to have a book actually that appeals to quite a wide audience,
1: really. One of the reasons I thought it felt more like a general read book was because although We've, we've got the different narrators, as Mary's said, but we also have, every so often, we have bits from uh, Timor's mind, and he's definitely not a young adult. He's he's the h- husband of the former Supreme Commander, and um, he must be, I think, at one point, say he's probably about 40 or so. So, And he also has a story arc. He goes from being um, very much... A under the thumb of his wife to actually becoming his own person, and uh, there's a really nice description of how he changes from the point of view of uh, one of the dogs, which was a um, uh, dog sees that Timor has risen in prestige within his pack. <laughs> I think one of the nice things about one of the many nice things is about his relationship with Gloria and it's not a relationship. It's a, it's a kind of father daughter relationship in the sense that um, by the end, it's clear that um, Timor's fondness for and exasperation with Gloria is a bit like a sort of a father might be. So it, It's almost a love story between them, but in an appropriate way between a a grown-up adult and a a girl. It's definitely not positioned in
0: any other way than that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And you wouldn't even question that from reading the book. No, no, you wouldn't. And I didn't actually think she seemed that young, but she was very innocent and naive about a lot of things, so... um... Which, which sort of added to the humour, actually. Yes, yeah, absolutely.
1: And maybe that's what you can get from... She's meant to have been someone from the country coming to the city, so she is a bit the innocent, really. But she is meant to be 16 in the story. And, yeah, she probably is quite ignorant because she's not had that much education from the sound of it and she's, and you know, she has a bit of a, a thing about the fact that she never learned Latin and so forth, which is not normally the prerequisite for knowing life but yeah, she hasn't had the opportunity to have an education so it's sort of a society where maybe you leave you you know somebody who gets sent away from her her family at the age of maybe 14 or 15 and and comes to a big city hasn't really had a chance to learn everything about life <laughs> but I still felt I think there was something about this in the article, maybe that uh, Geraldine McCorken isn't as well known as some children's writers. And maybe part of that is because each of her books is different and she doesn't write in series. So it perhaps takes a little more work to get into each book than it does to get into books that maybe
0: follow a more familiar pattern. And one of the one of the standout things about her books as well are the language that they're written in, her actual style of writing it's very descriptive, it's um it does create the scene there, it's very well written and and very readable at the same time. Mm-hmm. So uh it's got a lot going for it actually.
1: Yes, I think Where the World Ends took as I said, that took me longer to get into because maybe because there were a lot of characters and it took a while for those characters to become uh, differentiated so it was a lot about the description and the you know the description and the setting were were something very extraordinary and well worth exploring but I can imagine that as a younger child a younger person I might have been less into that than I am at the moment because there always used to be books that the teachers liked and um, seemed to be the ones that won the awards that were never quite never felt quite as
0: readable when you started them as others yeah, oh, it'd be interesting, actually, for me to find, to get some feedback from other others reading that book, younger children mm-hmm. reading that book, because I have sold quite a few copies in the past. I think it's very attractively
1: presented. I like the... I mean, I like the way it does have little the little bits of newspaper and quizzes and it has a little pull-out cover bit on it. It's, it's a book I, I wanted to actually buys a real book when Mary showed me it so yeah I think it could do well well let's
0: fingers crossed (laughs) yeah
1: I also wanted while we were talking about the subject of lies I wanted to talk about another book if Mary doesn't mind
0: absolutely no problem because it's it's another young adult book isn't it I understand yeah
1: yeah it's another young adult book so it's it's the lie tree by Francis Harding uh says winner of a costa book award i think like, i think yeah i think she did win the costa book award for this it doesn't normally go to children's young adults um books but the previous person in that area that's won it was uh, philip pullman for um i'm gonna say the subtle knife but it might have been a different one in that that trilogy so anyways this this book is also about lies which is one of the reasons why I thought it might fit with uh, talking about The Supreme Lie. This is about the third book I've read by Frances Harding. She's a really uh, interesting young adult children's writer. Uh, more in the fantasy zone than Geraldine McCorken is. But this particular book, is, although it has fantasy elements, is mainly historical. So it's mainly set in 19th century um Victorian late Victorian times and it's set on I thought at first it was going to be set on something like uh, Cornwall or the Silly Isles but it seems to be set more towards uh, an obscure island in um, the Channel Islands basically it's a late Victorian coming of age story Uh, 14 year old Faith Sunderly has to solve the mystery of why her father who is a famous scientist on the verge of being in disgrace mystery of how, why he was killed and she has to do this within the limitations of what you can do of a girl of that age in that era because she wants to be a scientist herself. she's very aware of how um, women aren't allowed to do certain things. she's always been told off by her mother and her father about um, she has to be good not clever they don't want they don't think being clever will do her any good. So, it's set on this island, and somebody's killed him, and he's in disgrace because it's just been found out that he's a big scientific fraud. That's where the fantastical element comes in, which is the lie tree itself. So, this is a tree that grows if you feed it lies. The bigger the lie, the more it flourishes. So, if Gloria from Supreme Lie had had this tree, it would have done really well because she was telling a big lie by pretending to be Madame Suprema. The reason you want to tell a lie and get the tree to grow is because it produces fruits that reveal secrets through visions. Faith's father had found this tree and wanted to find out scientific truths, but in order to do that, he had to tell a big lie in order to make the tree uh, produce fruits that would help him find out these secrets. So it's kind of a, a little bit of a paradox, but I think maybe also going in the same direction as the supreme lies to say, well... Lying always has a cost. Um, so anyway, uh, Faith wants the tree to grow so she can discover who killed her father, which in effect it does help her with. But the, the tree only grows in the dark. So there's this very vivid sense that, um, of a tree growing all its roots and becoming quite evil, which I think is sort of a, a metaphor for um, lies, uh, tree of knowledge um, finding out things you shouldn't find out, uh, all gotten secrets are just not really gonna do you any good. But again, that's a bit like The Supreme Lie, that makes it sound a bit serious. And it is more, I would say it's a more serious book than The Supreme Lie, but it's also, um, a very readable book. It's, uh, there's a really good relationship between Faith and her younger brother, who's supposed to be the one that will, um, get the scientific education and so forth, but that's not what he's really interested in. And there's also some good uh, portraits of people on the island, particularly a, a boy that she kind of begins to work with, even though they do distrust each other. And it's it just seemed to work really well for me. I thought better... I've read two other books by Frances Harding, which I've liked, but I felt this one was the one that really worked for me. So I would definitely recommend it and I'm definitely going to see if I can read a few more of her books and see whether uh, they come up to the sound of this one. So that's that's my recommendation Thank of you the very day. much for that, <laughs> but I think it's it's interesting it is kind of working in the same area that um, lies can give you power but they can also at the end of the day they can distort the way you live and that you know they can lead to ruin which was very much the case with uh, the father in that story. Okay,
0: well, I think that's probably sort of covered most aspects of our books today. Mm -hmm. I would certainly recommend The Supreme Lie as an interesting book perhaps to read with a class of um, 12, 13 year olds. Lots of lots of themes that you could talk about. You could talk about environmental issues from it you could certainly talk a lot about fake news and how politicians sometimes manipulate things and also the fact that power perhaps um, oh, too much power can cor- <laughs> yeah. corrupt and that being popular isn't always you know the best way to go so uh it, yeah good we really we, we liked it and i think we all had a good read definitely The next book that we shall be reading and talking about is called After the Fire by Will Hill. And I'll just read you a little bit from the blurb. It says, the things I've seen are burnt into me like scars that refuse to fade. Father John controls everything inside the fence. And Father John likes rules, especially about never talking to outsiders. Because Father John knows the truth, he knows what is right and what is wrong. He knows what is coming. Moonbeam is starting to doubt, though. She's starting to see the lies behind Father John's word. She wants him to be found out. What if the only way out of darkness is to light a fire? And that's all I'm going to say. Sounds like that will continue the theme of lies as well.
1: So that, that could be good.
0: Yes, I have read this book already. And it's a very gripping story. Right, well, we'll hear more about that next time since I haven't read any of it. Okay, thank you everyone for listening. And if you would like a copy of After the Fire, then please get in touch with Mary's bookshelf or um, on Osborne. I'll put the link in the notes. Okay, thank you everybody. Bye.